Welcome, everybody, to the London School of Economics. Uh, welcome to tonight's public event, a dialogue on the ethics of war, which is uh, supported and sponsored by the Forum for European Philosophy, the Center for Philosophy, the Natural and Social Sciences, and the Department for Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method here at LSE. It's my great pleasure to introduce the speakers for tonight, uh, Cecil Fabre and Jeff McMahon, who join us tonight um, from Oxford, who made it to the LSE through the rain, through the flood. Earlier this week, when we thought there would be a tube strike, they even emailed and said, if push comes to shove, we'll cycle to the LSE. Um, not, not from Oxford. But from Baker Street. From Baker Street, Or St. Pancras, or Paddington, where you get in. Um, so it's, thank you for being here. Um, I think that for Cecile, speaking at the LSE is coming home in some sense. Cecile was teaching here. She was a lecturer and a senior lecturer in the Department um, of Government. Uh, Cecile is part of a movement uh, that is involved with revising orthodox just war theory. She's been writing um, a two-volume book on just war theory, the first volume called um, The Cosmopolitan War, the second volume called The Cosmopolitan Peace, the Cosmopolitan War has been published. I think the Cosmopolitan piece is still work in progress. Um, it's also my pleasure to introduce Jeff McMahon. He's professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, currently visiting um, Oxford. I think it's probably fair to call him the godfather of that movement that is involved in revising orthodox just war theory. Um, most famously in his relatively recent book, Killing in War. 2014 is the anniversary of World War I, I mean, not quite yet, in August this year. And uh, one way to look at the anniversary of World War I maybe is to see that World War I underlines the importance and significance of ethical questions surrounding war, right? questions about the conditions, circumstances under which you may wage war upon each other but also questions that arise when it comes to fighting a war, right? How can a war be fought justly? And there exists an orthodox answer to that question, right? a well-established answer that is present in international law, um, also in philosophy, orthodox just war theory, as developed most famously, I think, by Michael Walzer. But I think the two of you believe that there's something wrong with this orthodox view, orthodox just war theory. Um, and maybe a good way to kick us off is if you could briefly maybe sketch what you think the most important elements of the orthodox just war theory um, are, and then explain what you think is wrong with orthodox just war theory, how it has to be revised. So thank you very much for being here, and I hand over. Good. Um, thank you very much um, for inviting us. Um, I mean, the offer to come and do a dialogue with you here was one that neither the godfather of the revisionist movement nor I could refuse, quite obviously. <laughs> Um, now, I should say, by way of prefatory comments, that uh, those of you who have come here with perhaps the expectation or even the hope to witness a philosophical bloodbath will be very disappointed, for as you will come to see in the course of the next 90 minutes, Jeff and I are in broad agreement on how just war theory should be properly conceived. So my task tonight is the, uh, the task of being the best advocate that the devil could possibly have, where the devil here can be regarded as or labelled orthodox just war theory, or Michael Walzer for short, you know, poor man. 
So what I'm going to do is spend a few minutes trying to articulate what the orthodox account of the ethics of war you know, has to say on, in particular, the act of killing in war as carried out by combatants against other combatants. Uh, Jeff will then do his usual demolition job on the orthodox account, and then depending on what um, our boss in this enterprise, namely Gabriel, says, we will either pause to perhaps open up the discussion to the floor or uh, draw out together some of the really controversial implications of the revisionist account. Now, it seems to me that, and I don't think Jeff will disagree with me on this, but it seems to me that when we embark on the task of thinking about war, morally speaking, the really philosophically and morally urgent thing to do is the task of reflecting on the act of killing. This is what war really largely is about. So what we are trying to discern when we think about the morality of war is in large part what are the conditions under which soldiers may kill in war, civilians, of course, if they sometimes are permitted to kill civilians, but also other soldiers. Now, the revisionist account of war takes issue with one of the key tenets of the orthodox account, and that key tenet is that once the war has started, combatants fighting on one side may, that is to say, are morally permitted to kill combatants fighting for the other side. Now, to try to bring out how unusual at first sight that view is, Let me introduce an imaginary example which I imagine takes place, it's it's a story which I construct, which takes place on the eve of the First World War on the 27th of June, 1940. Now imagine that we have a German national, I'm going to call him Karl for ease of exposition, and that German national is walking around somewhere through the Belgian countryside. Karl is armed and he decides that he's going to take possession of a house owned by a Belgian national whom I'm going to call Philippe for expository purposes. Philippe also is armed, and in the scuffle that ensues, shots are fired. Karl has no reason whatsoever to want to seize Philippe's house. Philippe defends his property, then his life, since Karl has started Shooting at which point Karl's life is at risk now that Philippe is defending himself and in the scuffle that ensues, Karl shoots Philippe to death. Now, in every possible jurisdiction that I can think of, Karl would be charged with murder. Philippe would be defending his life in legitimate self-defense. Karl would not be deemed morally, legally permitted to kill Philippe. Fast forward now to the 4th of August, 1940. Imagine a different story. And in that different story, which takes place on the 4th of August, 1914, Karl is not just a German national walking his way, killing his way through the Belgian countryside. He's a soldier in the German army, and with his regiment, he has crossed the border into Belgium. Karl and his fellow German soldiers pose a lethal threat to Belgian soldiers. Let's assume that Philippe, in that alternative story, is 
a soldier in the Belgian army, Philippe, together with his fellow Belgian soldiers, is defending civilian dwellings, belongings, the lives of other Belgian nationals. In the scuffle that follows, which in this particular scenario we call war, shots are being fired. Carl kills Philippe. Now, according to the laws of war and according to the orthodox account of the morality of war which underpins those laws, in this alternative story, on the 4th of August 1914, Carl is legally but also morally permitted to kill Philippe. So here's the question that we must ask ourselves. What has changed between those two stories such that Carl's act of killing Philippe on the 27th of June 1914 would count as an act of murder, condemnable at the bar of law and morality, whereas on the 4th of August of that year, his act is no longer an act of murder. It's a permitted act of killing. Well, clearly, as you know, of course, what has changed is that in the morning of the 4th of August 1914, the German leadership has declared war against Belgium and ordered the German army to invade Belgium. Belgium had maintained her position of neutrality in any conflict that would erupt between the main European powers. So we need to know what it is that a declaration war does that turns what would normally be regarded as an act of murder, unwarranted murder, into an act of permissible killing. We need to know why it is that once the war has been declared, ordinary soldiers are suddenly given the moral permission and indeed the legal right to kill enemy soldiers who fight in defense of their life and property. Now, according to the orthodox account, there are many reasons, several reasons as to why Ordinary soldiers are morally permitted to kill enemy combatants in war when they would not have been permitted to kill those very same individuals prior to the declaration of war. And the most simple, I'm going to resist the word simplistic because I am, after all, supposed to be the devil's advocate, but the most simple of those arguments consists in saying that once soldiers are in the army, they are quite simply under a duty to obey orders. On the 4th of August 1914, Karl and his fellow German soldiers are given an order by their leadership to cross the border into Belgium, exchange shots if necessary against Belgian soldiers, and that's all that there is to it. Now, if soldiers on that view are under a duty to obey orders, if they are to be regarded according to the simple account as nothing but agents acting for the state, then it would be unfair to deny them the permission to defend their life when the defending soldiers, the Belgian soldiers on that account, start using their guns as well. Now, on that simple argument... It is postulated or it is claimed that soldiers are under a duty to obey orders. Now, it's very easy to resist you know, the simple argument, but it seems to me that there are a more sophisticated version of that argument, which consists in saying that it is desirable that soldiers should help themselves under a very strict duty to obey orders. It is desirable in the sense that we do, particularly if we are concerned with ensuring that the military should remain subservient 
to the civilian, particularly elected civilian part of the day, it is desirable that soldiers should remain in the barracks when ordered to do so and should leave the barracks when ordered to do so by those ultimately in charge. That is a crucial component, the argument will say, of a well-functioning military. And so on that view, we should understand that soldiers are under a duty to obey orders And then the argument continues, if we want to make sure that they hold themselves under a duty to obey orders, we cannot deny them the permission to defend themselves when they are attacked by the enemy, even if the leadership is wrong and justified in issuing that order in the first instance. According to this orthodox account, the fact that the war might be unjust The fact, that is to say, that Germany, let's assume for the sake of argument, ought not to have invaded Belgium on the 4th of August 1914 is entirely irrelevant. Once the order has been given, then the soldiers who are under a duty to obey that admittedly unjust order have to be given the permission to defend their life. We cannot expect them morally to sacrifice themselves for the sake of justice. Now, there is another way in which the orthodox account defends the view that irrespective of whether or not the war that they are asked to fight is a just war to begin with, ordinary soldiers may kill the enemy in the pursuit of that war. And that argument looks to the difficulties inherent in making a judgment about the justness of the war in the first instance. Take the very first story with which I began. We can reasonably expect our German national Karl, who is wandering his way through the Belgian countryside on the 27th of June, 1914, we can reasonably expect him to know that he simply ought not to go around threatening Belgian people with his gun just because he wants to appropriate their dwelling. By contrast, the orthodox account goes, it's unreasonable to expect ordinary soldiers to exercise their private judgment when deciding or in order to decide whether the order that they have been given is a just order. And there are many reasons as to why we might think that it is unreasonable to expect ordinary soldiers to reach that kind of judgment. Now, the arguments that I'm going to deploy here have been formulated in extenso in the relevant literature, I've had a couple of British generals put them to me, in fact, very clearly, so I can name them because they did so in public, so there is nothing secret about this. One was General Mike Jackson, who, as you know, was the head of the British Army when the British Army invaded Iraq with the United States in 2003. Um, The other one was General Michael Rose, who was in charge of um, one of the military phases conducted by the UN in the war in Bosnia. What they have said to me, and what many people who pound the orthodox account will say, is that ordinary soldiers, rank-and-file soldiers, either are simply not educated enough to make a judgment about the reasons why an order is given to mount a particular invasion, or even if they are educated enough, they simply do not have access to the information, the intelligence, and so on, that we need to know about 
in order to make a judgment as to whether or not the war is just. And so on that view, given that we cannot expect ordinary soldiers to decide for themselves whether the war which they are asked to fight and in the name of which that they are asked to kill is a just war, it would be unfair once the war has started to deny them the moral permission to kill the enemy in defense of their lives. So these are two reasons the there is a duty to obey orders argument and the we can't expect them to judge on the justness of the war. These are two standard reasons as to why, according to the orthodox account, once the war has started, ordinary soldiers, irrespective of whether or not the justifications which are advanced by the leadership to support the war are good justifications, while ordinary soldiers are morally permitted to kill in prosecution of that war. This is why, in other words, what would normally be an act of killing, of murder, on the 27th of June, 1914, becomes a permissible act on the 4th of August of that year. Now, Jeff is now going to tell you why those arguments ought to be rejected. Well, that's very kind of Cecile, too, um, for the fairy godmother of revisionist just war theory to... uh, take up the role of advocatus diaboli here in this uh, context. We, as, as she said, we don't really disagree about this. She has presented the position that we both reject, and it's my job to tell you why we reject it. Let me say something about the case for the permissibility of people who are fighting in an unjust war killing people who are fighting in a just war that Cecile has just sketched for you. There are various arguments that defenders and advocates of the traditional theory of the just war have made for the permissibility of uh, killing by soldiers on both sides in a war, which, as you probably know, is the common sense view about the morality of war. It's what the traditional theory of the just war says, and it's also found in the uh, international law of war, in particular uh, international humanitarian law. The account that Cecile gave was something like this. You imagine a soldier who is part of an army that is in fact fighting an unjust war. And this soldier is ordered then to go out and fight. The soldier may be acting in some degree of moral uncertainty. But the point that Cecile emphasized is that this soldier is acting under duress in that this soldier will be punished, perhaps very severely. If we go back to the First World War, for example, the punishments for Uh, conscientious refusal or any kind of refusal by soldiers uh, in in various armies uh, were very severe. Uh, Even in the British Army, uh, some people who uh, wouldn't fight were just shot. And uh, 
So the, the, the level of duress can be quite high. And so Cecile says once they're out there, having got there under duress, uh, surely because they are innocent, they must have a right of individual self-defense. Um, think of a parallel in ordinary life. Uh, somebody says to me, quite credibly, and it's in fact true, uh, kill Cecile right now or I'll kill you. Do you have to make this personal? Yeah. Uh, well, we can choose Gabriel if you, yeah. if you like. Um, now, the fact that somebody threatens me with death if I don't kill Gabriel doesn't provide me with any kind of moral permission to kill Gabriel. You might think that it would be excusable if I were to kill Gabriel. Perhaps I wouldn't deserve very much punishment if, in fact, it's true that I'm going to be killed if I don't kill Gabriel. But that doesn't give me a justification for killing Gabriel. What I would do if I were to kill him would still be wrong. Um, but now suppose I decide to do it anyway because the, the, the duress is, is irresistible. So I'm getting ready to kill Gabriel. And Gabriel sees that this is about to happen. Um, and so, you know, somehow or other, I've got a weapon that's understandable because I'm American. Um, I don't know what he's doing with a weapon, but let's assume that he has one. And he sees that I'm about to kill him, so he is getting out his weapon to kill me preemptively. Now, according to the, the, the morality of the situation that is supposed to govern killing in war, according to the traditional theory that Cecile just sketched for you, because I'm in this situation, because I'm under duress, and even though I'm acting impermissibly in, in threatening to kill Gabriel, the fact that he's now about to kill me somehow makes it permissible for me to kill him. Could that possibly be right? I just don't see where this permission could come from. I mean, I'm, actually, I'm the one who's acting wrongly here. Um, he hasn't done anything. I don't see where I could get a permission to kill him in self-defense if he's defending himself against an unjustified threat posed to him by me. That is, he's acting perfectly permissibly in uh, defending himself against me because I'm acting wrongly. Uh, so, <clears throat> this symmetrical account of defense that is the essence of the understanding of the permissibility of killing in war presented by the traditional theory of the just war seems to me just indefensible. Um, situations in which one person wrongly threatens another and the other then permissibly fights back are, as I'm just indicating, morally asymmetrical in this way. There's a moral asymmetry between the unjustified initiator of the threat and the justified self-defender. Now what the theory of the just war does is to divorce the morality of conduct in war from the permissibility or justifiability of the war itself. So whether or not a country is justified in fighting, it's supposed to be true 
that those who actually do the fighting somehow don't do anything wrong? How is it that they get this exemption? Well, the usual claim is something like this, that in the conduct of war, the criterion for liability to being killed is that one poses a threat to others. And you'll find this going back hundreds of years in the tradition of just war theory. That is what the notion innocent means in the technical vocabulary of just war theory. That is, when, when uh, uh, in just war theory you say that somebody is innocent, what you're saying is that person poses no threat to somebody else. And this is found in the etymology of the term. Innocent means not nocentis, which is Latin meaning someone who is threatening or, or harmful. So the innocent are those who are not threatening or harmful. And it's impermissible to kill the innocent, but permissible to kill those who are non-innocent, namely those who are threatening or harmful. The problem with this understanding is that there just seems to be no reason why uh, somebody like Gabriel who's threatening or harmful, but only because he's having to defend himself against a wrongful threat by me, should forfeit his right not to be killed by me, should become liable to attack by me. There's really nothing about being non-innocent in the relevant just war sense that could make a person lose his right not to be killed. The reason is that when Gabriel poses this threat to me, he's morally justified in doing so. And if he's acting with moral justification, it doesn't seem that he could be forfeiting any of his rights. It doesn't seem that he could be making himself liable to be killed by me. What's odd about the traditional theory of the just war is that it does have one theory of defense that it applies at the level of the state and that's just the familiar theory of self-defense that we have. Namely, if one state wrongfully attacks another state, the state that is attacked has a right of self-defense against the wrongful attack, but the state that's attacking doesn't in fact have any right of defense against the state that it has wrongfully attacked. And that's the way we understand self-defense in all contexts, except, according to common sense morality and the just war theory, the context of war, where soldiers supposedly have this asymmetrical theory, or sorry, this symmetrical theory of self-defense governing uh, the morality of killing. Now, how could that be? Well, the just war theory says war is fundamentally different from other areas of life. In a state of war, the moral principles that apply in all other contexts are somehow suspended, and a new morality comes into effect. This new morality is this 
special morality of defense that is entirely symmetrical between wrongful aggressors and justified defenders. So that their action, the soldiers themselves, is now completely severed from any question about whether the ends or aims on behalf of which they are fighting are justified or unjustified. Now, I just don't see how you can possibly do that, how it can be permissible for people to kill people who've done nothing wrong intentionally, to kill these people intentionally as a means of achieving aims that are unjust. Now, that's what... I forget the name of the... uh, German soldier is doing to Philippe. Carl. This is what Carl is doing to Philippe. Carl has no business being in Belgium with a gun. Doesn't have any justification for being there. Uh, But suppose you find this idea plausible that somehow or other in a state of war a new morality comes into existence according to which people who are fighting on both sides are acting permissibly in killing soldiers on the other side. And that's because all soldiers have made themselves morally liable to be killed by virtue of the fact that they pose a threat. They are harmful. They are non-innocent in this technical sense. If that were true, there would have to be something about war and the shift from a state that stops short of war and a state of war that could sufficiently explain why it is that ordinary morality is suspended and a new morality comes into effect. Well, what, what, what exactly happens when we go from a, a state that's not a condition of war to a condition of war that could account for a new morality coming into effect at that point. Well, one thing seems clear, and that is that just war theorists have never tried to provide a definition of war that would provide support for this idea, namely that when we have the transition from non-war to war, something really important happens that uh, causes one morality, ordinary morality, to be suspended so that another one comes into effect. Now, in law, of course, that does happen. In law, when war begins, a new body of law comes into effect, namely international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. Uh, But that's entirely conventional, and lawyers will give you an understanding of what's necessary and sufficient for there to be a war. But it's not assumed that anything morally important happens then, but just something legally quite important happens, namely a new body of law comes into effect. That's not very mysterious. But what, what, could, what could happen in the transition from non-war to war that could trigger the... Uh, initiation of of a a new set of principles that begin to govern conduct. Think about um, what's recently happened in Syria. 
That started off as uh, a series of popular protests against the government. The government met the protests with some repression. Uh, there were more protests with increasing violence, met with increasing repression by the government. There's uh, steady escalation on both sides. So it's going from a small domestic conflict to a larger domestic conflict until at some point we start saying, now there's a war, there's a civil war in Syria. So we've gone from a state of low level of conflict, which is not war, to a state in which there is war, and when there's a state of civil war under the law, um, and there are, you know, you can think of uh, the, the legal reasons why there are for saying that uh, there's been a transition from non-war to war. But there are also, you know, what's happening there in Syria is going to have to uh, track our ordinary use of the term war so that it's, it's, not, it's not going to sound like a mistake if I say there's now a war in Syria and has been for a while, whereas previously there wasn't, but the, the evolution of this war was something that happened quite gradually. Um, what happened over the course of that transition that was so important? Well, as I say, lawyers can tell you what, what made it go from being a domestic conflict to a civil war. It might be that, for example, the uh, rebel forces gain control of certain territory. If they're in control of certain cities, that may be sufficient to show that there's a civil war rather than just a domestic conflict. And that has a lot of legal consequences. But could rebel forces taking possession of certain towns make a difference to what moral principles apply? What is it about the transition from non-war to war that brings this wholly different and really unique set of principles into effect? I think there's absolutely nothing to justify that. And that war is just you know, a, 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 on a continuum with cases of lower level self-defense and other defense for which the governing principles are asymmetrical. And there's nothing that I can see that happens in the transition from lower level conflict to war that it could account for the principles of self-defense changing from being asymmetrical between the justified and the unjustified to being symmetrical between both so that each is justified in trying to kill the other. Um, as uh, Cecile said, we made a decision prior to this event to limit our remarks in, in, in order that people here would have a chance to ask questions and share in the discussion with us. We were told initially that we should speak for an hour together, but I think what we're going to do is I'm just going to stop there. I think we've given you a, 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 some sense of the basic structure of this debate between traditional just war theorists and their critics. And so I'll step down now and you can direct questions to both of us and um, there are other people in the room who um, have written about these issues as well. So if we get, if we get uh, uh, 
a question that we can't answer, we'll refer it to Helen or somebody else who can answer it for us. Are you going to handle the queue? I'll, I'll handle the queue so you can concentrate and focus on answering the questions. Mike? I think there's a mic. Mike for Mike. Mike for Mike. Thanks. Um, Microphone on? Is, is this microphone picking? Okay. Uh, yeah, my name is Mike Otsuka. I'm in the philosophy department. So, um, what accounts for the change when we have a civil war in Syria or when we move from Karl uh, going into Belgium and attacking Philippe in peacetime and in wartime? Well, how about this as a proposal? In the one case, you have an authority that is able to determine who is and isn't in the wrong. Uh, it's got a monopoly on le le the legitimate use of force. And then in this other case, when you have a civil war, you no longer have a single authority who's able to determine who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Each person is, each side is going to consider itself its own authority. And in fact, in in your book, Jeff, you offer a justification for a change in, or for a, just, a justification for, for adopting a different set of rules when it comes to warfare, which is based on the fact, I think, that we don't have a single authority that can determine who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And when each side is going to be able, is going to claim uh, that it's in the right, and not recognize the authority of the other, then you have some fairly compelling consequentialist reasons to symmetrically apply the same rules to both sides so as to restrain both sides. Now, now one thing you've said is, well, that's perhaps a um, pragmatic prudential justification, but it's not really getting at the fundamentals of what's just and unjust. And I suppose that what I want to just suggest in response is that in any context, what's just and unjust, or what's wrong and what's right, are going to depend on things like our access to the evidence. Um, and there may be sort of things that are similar here that, and, and what's possible. I mean, ought implies can, for example. So, so it's not at all obvious to me that um, the reasons that one might appeal to to explain why it is that we have to treat the two sides symmetrically uh, when there's no single authority might be reasons that actually justify the law of, of war to um, show that it's actually a, a, a just law. Can I just ask you to clarify? Um, why you seemed to make sure you seemed to um, distinguish the case of civil wars from the case of interstate wars at the beginning of your remarks? Uh, no. no, no, you don't. No, so, no, so, I wasn't. So, 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 yeah. So when we so, so what unites a civil war and in interstate war and justifies, okay, I suppose, right. the law of war occurring okay, that there's good. no single. Okay. Uh, yeah. Authority that that that, that can okay. determine who's right. who's in the right and who's in the wrong. You go. Okay. I don't see 
how the rights and wrongs of a war could be dependent on the evidence um, if we're thinking about the rights and wrongs objectively, um, which I think is what's relevant to individual liability, that is, whether people really are acting permissibly or impermissibly in the in what philosophers call the fact-relative sense. Um, but I, I agree with you. It's, it's actually on, is it not? Is it not? Is that? I agree with you that soldiers generally act in conditions of moral uncertainty so that if we have a set of principles that just say those of you who are in the right are permitted to fight and those of you who are in the wrong should go home and you're not permitted to fight, that's going to be very ineffective in action-guiding terms because everybody's going to believe that they're in the right and so they're going to believe that the principles that apply to them are the principles that apply to those who are fighting a just war rather than an unjust war. So people are going to fight uh, whether they're in the right or in the wrong. And most people who are fighting in the wrong believe they're in the right. Uh, now, I don't think that this has any implications for what I call first-order morality. It still seems to me that even if, let's say, to take a paradigm case, Nazi soldiers believe that they are acting rightly because they believe that, let's say, Polish territory is necessary for the expansion of the German Volk and the inferior races uh, can be sacrificed for the sake of the superior races. And they believe this very sincerely and so on. Um, they're still wrong about all of that. And they're acting objectively, impermissibly. On the other hand, the fact that they believe that they're in the right is something that we have to take account of in practical terms. And so if we want an effective law of war, it will probably have to remain the way it is now, symmetrical between the just and the unjust, for reasons that are concerned largely with consequences. But that doesn't mean that the morality is changed, in my view. I mean, you can, we can continue to have this. It just means that we may have to permit, legally, Nazi soldiers to do certain things that are morally wrong, and we may actually also have to legally proscribe certain actions on the part of soldiers who are fighting justly um, that are actually morally permissible but we have to make them legally impermissible for those soldiers. So in my view, the revisionist just war theory, as Cecile and I have uh, expounded it and developed it, um, necessitates or, or makes it the case that there is uh, a broad divergence between the morality of war and the law of war as we have it now, and I, at least, Except that the fact that the law of war doesn't now coincide at all closely with the, with the, with the what did I start off with? The law of war doesn't now coincide at all closely with the morality of war doesn't mean that the law of war should now be 
changed to become more congruent with the morality of war because that would arguably have these terribly bad consequences. On the other hand, I do think that if people do understand the morality of war well, so that if a Nazi soldier recognizes that his war is unjust, then I think that what he ought morally to do is not to fight, even though the law says it's per perfectly permissible for him to do so. Um, no, later, if we run out, I'd rather people... Yeah. Okay. Yes, um, just, to, just to have another, another bash at trying to explain um, perhaps why um, there's a difference between war and non-war situations. I mean, first, perhaps, um, to, perhaps the difference isn't quite as stark as you make it anyway. Um, for example, in a non-war situation, um, say a policeman is sent out as a part of a group of police to, you know, to, to police some sort of demonstration or something where they've actually shouldn't have been sent out because it was, you know, it was, it was a bad decision by the government. Um, these people were perfectly peaceful protesters or whatever it was, and the, and the government had decided, though, that they wanted to raise the temperature or whatever because of some political objective. And so the, the government was, was acting in an unjust fashion, um, and the police go out, and then there's a scuffle, and the policeman kills one of the demonstrators. Um, one, so that would be a situation where I don't know if the policeman would be... I don't doubt that we would say that the policeman necessarily was um, behaving immorally. Um, and then if you go to the other situation where you're in a war... Um, I think we might, I mean, I don't know what the, the just war theory, the classic theory says on this, but um, it seems to me that there are some cases where um, soldiers um, know or should have known very clearly that what they were being asked to do was wrong. And then we would say, indeed, they were um, behaving wrongly. So that's basically trying to sort of slightly... Um, Soften the divide between a war situation and a non-war situation. But, but having tried to soften it, then what I'd like to say is that perhaps there is a difference which explains um, why one has um, different values in, in the two cases. And, and I mean, but which, which, which doesn't um, actually make a black and white, but it makes it as part of a continuum. But perhaps there's a, some sort of inflection point, which is when you move into a war situation, I would say that two things normally happen. One is that things move extremely fast, and therefore the ability of the soldiers on the ground to actually form a view about um, what is right and what is wrong, I mean, there's much, much more limited possibility to do that. And secondly, when you move into a war situation, normally the stakes are much, much higher um, than in a non-war situation. And therefore, society perhaps has to organize itself um, so as to have things like the sort of command and control 
um, system that Cecile was talking about. So that would sort of give at least two attempts to explain why we think soldiers should normally, but not always, obey orders and, and, and why normally perhaps they're not in a position to judge for themselves what is just and what isn't. Good. That's, that's very helpful. Um, for what it's worth, I don't know whether Jeff would agree with me on this, but um, I would um, treat the case of the police officer no differently you know, from the case of the soldier. Uh, so if it is true that you know, war is not you know, sui generis, you know, then the range of arguments that you know, revisionists like us tend to put forward you know, to deny that you know, soldiers are morally on a par on either side of the conflict would also apply you know, to the case of the police officer you know, and the case of the, uh, the demonstrators. Um, so that whilst the police officer might have an excuse for killing off you know, a, demonstra- a demonstrator, that doesn't finish him you know, with a justification for doing so in the case that you have just described. So, so I, would, uh, you know, I would argue along those lines. Um, the second point that you made to soften the you know, line between war cases and non-war cases is very interesting. You are right that, as it happens, in many cases in war, soldiers do know that what they are asked to do is morally wrong. And those very often are cases which involve civilians. But you see, it seems to me that that kind of point you know, adds strength to the revisionist line. For if it is true that once the war has started, in the fog of war, soldiers do, and in fact, as the law says, are expected to know whether or not an order that they have been given to kill a civilian is a just order, then why exempt them from that expectation before they have even left you know, the barracks? And I think that's you know, a, a point that the orthodox account really will struggle with. Because in those moments, in a conflict that will oppose a soldier and a civilian, for the orthodox account, war is not sui generis you know, anymore. It seems to me that the challenge that the orthodox account faces is precisely to show why violence between soldiers once the war has started is sui generis, so different principles will apply from those that apply in interpersonal contexts, but violence between soldiers on the one hand and civilians whom they attack and who resist is not sui generis. And that's a, a tension within the orthodox account which I don't think that it has successfully you know, resolved. So I'll, I'll leave it to that. I'll just add something very quickly there. And, and that is, I, I agree with Cecile that the considerations that you referred to um, in the situation of the police officers and in the situation of soldiers who are having to be deployed very quickly with little time for thought about what they're being asked to do and so on, um, do provide excusing conditions for them. That is to say, they mitigate their culpability if what they're doing is wrong. But it doesn't transform wrongful action into permissible action in the ordinary familiar sense. Now, as Mike and other professional philosophers here know, there's um, some philosophers have 
distinguish between different conceptions of permissibility, perm permissibility relative to the evidence, permissibility relative to an agent's beliefs, permissibility relative to the facts, and that kind of thing. And you can uh, talk about these uh, different cases by reference to these different notions of permissibility, but as I said when I was speaking with Mike, um, the notion of permissibility that I think is most relevant um, to determining whether people really are uh, legitimate targets for um, violent action in war is the, the fact relative, the, the permissibility relative to the facts. The other thing I just wanted to mention was you did, you did concede that if soldiers know for sure that their war is unjust and, and you know, they know, they're knowing it implies that that's actually true, you said they shouldn't fight. Uh, if you accept that view, you've given up the traditional theory of the just war. Because the traditional theory doesn't say, say anything about degrees of belief. What the traditional theory says, or degrees of credence or whatever, the traditional theory says is that the fact that a war is unjust provides no moral reason whatsoever not to fight in that war. You're never doing anything impermissible to fight in a war that you've been commanded to fight in, no matter how transparently unjust it is. Gentlemen in the third row. Yeah. Hi. I just had a question about um, the kind of picture you painted at the start, which was continued throughout, and it painted a kind of picture of morality being always on individualistic terms. And I just have a question, is there not a concept of kind of group morality um, and that actually the shift when a war is begun is that some executive has said the whole state as a collective is now under an obligation and duty to act in a certain way. And it's not necessarily that someone on, on the lowest level of that is exculpated, but it's kind of that the, li the liability is vicarious or, or it can be traced to the top rather than being necessarily individualistic. Can I? Yeah, you go. Well, I'm a little reluctant to go too deeply into this because I see Christian over there and now I'm <laughs> going to get in trouble because he knows more about this than I do. But um, my view about war is that we should uh, understand these co collectivist or status dimensions of war uh, in a reductionist way and that it's a mistake to... Uh, reify collectives like states and armies and that kind of thing, and in particular to assign liability to people to be killed uh, on the basis of their group membership rather than on the basis of what they as individuals are doing. Um, in one way, this is kind of the essence of, uh, of terrorism, that is to make people to, to, to see people as legitimate targets for attack or harm simply by virtue of their membership in some group. And that is what the traditional just war theory does. It says that every person who belongs to the group combatants is morally liable to be killed, and every person who belongs to the group non-combatants is not liable to be killed. So it makes uh, a person's moral immunity from attack or moral liability to attack uh, a function of s status rather than action. And I think that's really pernicious. I mean, I just think that can't be true, that I could uh, be morally liable to be killed 
by virtue, and completely independently of what I may happen to be doing, by, by virtue of what group I happen to belong to. Can I, very quickly, who was put on trial at Nuremberg? They didn't go you know, in the street of Berlin and pick someone off that street. You say, oh, we're going to put you on trial you know, as a representative of Germany. Right. So do you see where the argument you know, goes there? But they, to, to draw on the police example before, if a policeman shot someone nowadays, it would be, in England, it would be the command structure that would be analysed. The policeman would be held responsible to a certain extent. But it's because of this whole concept that you're acting on behalf of a group that means that that policeman is not necessarily going to be tried for murder as a new command structure. So, well, they're, they're, in some cases, they are. There are pragmatic reasons yeah. why you might want to have the law work that way, because you want to give the people at the top the strongest incentives for maintaining rigid control over what those who are beneath them in the chain of command actually do. But it doesn't follow from the fact that that may work well as a matter of law and policy, that in every case when a police officer acts wrongly, there's someone higher up who's actually responsible for that. Um, uh, Paul. I'm sorry. No, he's sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this may be a non sequitur, but it. it, it I think it follows from, from Mike's original point and partly to your answer. One of the things I find puzzling about your account is that it presupposes that there is a single, true, and fully determining account of justice. My understanding of the, 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 the drift towards just war is to recognize, and if you take Thomas Aquinas as an example of this, he's somebody who comes closest to that view, but he still thinks that there are indeterminacies that cannot be settled simply by appeal to the law. Those are the occasions in which war is often used. Territorial boundaries, claims over various kinds of things, the sorts of things that classical natural law theorists think war is for. Now, if you think that there is a, you know, a single, coherent, fully determinate account of of, of justice that gives a right answer to all of these questions, then I can see why you would want to have, why you'd want to see this sort of symmetry between you know, individual dealings and what goes on in war. I just find that a wholly implausible view of the circumstances in which war arises, and I'm not sure it even captures how we understand morality. I just you know, even somebody like St. Thomas Aquinas, who believed that there was a, a single moral ordered, morally ordered universe, recognized indeterminacy. So questions of justice remained things that couldn't be given a fully determinate answer prior to the conflicts that we engage in. Okay. Well, uh, there's several things to say. The first is that wars, by which I mean the action of one side in a war rather than the, 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 whole, the, the action of all the sides together, 
can be morally quite complex, so that uh, one side may be fighting for some aims that are just and other aims that are unjust. And this might be true of both sides. So I actually think that the traditional focus of just war theory on wars as a whole, or wars as wholes, is a mistake. And that the relevant unit for evaluation is the individual aim in war. So that we can understand some of the aims as unjust or impermissible and other aims as just or permissible or whatever. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, but even when that's the case, even when there is this moral complexity, I'm still inclined to think that in most cases um, there are rights and wrongs that are objective and determinate. And you can see this if you think about instances of individual self-defense. The, uh, the, the background to a particular violent conflict may involve wrongs on both sides. It may even be that in the run-up to a violent conflict, one side is more in the wrong than the other, but once the violent conflict starts, a lot of that background uh, activity ceases to be relevant. So again, well, in this sense, I mean, suppose I'm being incredibly obnoxious to Gabriel, I'm, you know, I'm insulting his mother, I, um, uh, I, I criticize his modes of dress and you know, the way he wears his hair, and I'm just, I'm being just thoroughly annoying and obnoxious. And eventually, it gets to be too much for him. And so he comes after me with a baseball bat. Now, I've been wholly in the wrong, and, and, and I've been antagonizing him and, and provoking him and so on. But once he's attacked me with a baseball bat, wrongly, um, then the fact that I've been wrong doesn't in any way detract from my right of self-defense against him. and doesn't give him any rights to continue the attack against me. But I should say, I mean, as, as, a, as a matter of moral theory, I do actually think that there are cases of moral indeterminacy, that is. There are cases in which there is no right answer. I hope they are relatively rare. I think they're relatively rare. And I'm not sure I think of wars as obvious candidates for um, good examples of moral indeterminacy. Because I think if we knew everything, we might be able to arrive at a, 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 an objective judgment. The thing about war is not that, that there's uh, obvious indeterminacy. It's just that there, it is so complicated, you know, given the background factors, that it, it's almost impossible for persons of our epistemic capacity to, to uh, process all the relevant information. But you want to continue? Impermissible killing on behalf of uh, <coughs> French against the rest 
This is this is an epistemic problem mm-hmm. rather than a. ask you, so if we, if we form the judgment that a particular actor or set of actors in a given war you know, are you know, guilty of serious crimes or serious wrongdoings, should we wait for 30 years before we put them on trial? Should we say we need to wait? We need to wait for the judgment you know, of history? I mean, I, I wonder whether that is an implication you know, of your view. And if it is an implication of your view, I'm curious as to how damaging you think that it might be to your view. You're the last comeback sorry, before sorry. we have to move forward. Okay. We need the mic. Sorry. So you want to briefly... Oh, you're fine. Okay. So I think we need to keep the exchanges shorter to get through the list of questions, maybe cut out the comments on hair and shirts. And <laughs> well, I thought they were pretty well deserved. But. <laughs> James is next on the list, and keep your hands up. I mean, we'll never make it through that list, but I'll start recording anyways in the, in the front. Thanks. So the account you gave us was quite monolithic. It's, the suggestion was that either you're on the just side or you're not on the just side. But what's likely to happen, even in what starts as a just war, is there likely to be massacres... Uh, by even people on the just side. I was wondering, to what extent, in, on your view, does uh, unjust behaviour by people fighting in a generally just war um, justify um, fighting against them? And are we going to end up with some kind of strange kind of patchwork in which some soldiers on the unjust side are justified in fighting and, some, and only some ju- uh, soldiers on the just side are, are, are justified in fighting? Yeah, I, I think we, we, that's yeah. actually right. Yeah. That is that... Even in the case of a war that the the aims of which are wholly just, it may well be the case that some of the soldiers who are fighting for those aims uh, fight by means that are morally impermissible, and when they do that, they make themselves liable to attack even by the unjust soldiers, the soldiers on the unjust side. And I, 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 I thought that the comment that I made in response to Paul would would help. Dispel the idea that the that this account is uh, morally monolithic, because I did want to acknowledge that I think there are wars in which there, uh, both sides are pursuing both just and unjust aims, and I can give you kind of schematic examples where that's true. But then I think again, it's a complex matter how we work out the permissibility of the conduct of soldiers 
uh, on the basis of which aims their action um, is actually contributing to and so forth. But, but, so, but then I have a, a worry, uh, which I should tackle, except that I won't, so I'm leaving it to you to do it. How do we individuate aims? Because then we really have to start thinking about this. You know, do, do we say, oh, mm, they're not really allowed to seize this particular oil field, but what if you know, seizing this particular oil field you know, proves necessary you know, to, you know, will bring about two aims, one just, you know, one unjust. And in fact, you know, we, we might have, if we want to really endorse a you know, sorrowgoingly individualistic account, perhaps that all we need to think about is you know, individual acts of killing, just that. So what, so what is a name? What is a name? Where can we say, oh, we have one discrete aim, that's just or unjust, and then we have this other aim, which is discrete, and that one is just or unjust, you know, as the case may be. To pursue, you know, each of those aims, we might have to break it down, you know, into smaller aims. Do you see what I mean? Well, I can see the problem that an individual combatant's engaging in fighting may be instrumental to the achievement mm. of different aims, some of which are just and some of which are unjust, and then uh, one has to then determine on the basis of the likely effects of the particular action, whether it's permissible to, mm. to act given that it's going to contribute right. to both of yeah. these aims. And so you work out uh, on, on that basis. I mean, this is something that I think we face all the time in ordinary life anyway, that things that we're, we're doing are going to have some good effects and some bad effects. Mm. And um, if we're acting as the agent of somebody else, these effects may be intended by um, the, the principal, even if, if, if they're not intended by us. So we then have to think about all of these considerations yeah. to figure out what it's permissible for us to do. Right. Leah. Well, I'll leave it in the yeah. front. One, one way to explain the difference between Carl the individual and Carl the soldier is to talk about the difference between uh, morality, sort of individual morality, and the morality of role obligations. So to say that when people perform certain social roles and there are specific obligations that come with those roles. So I was wondering if the revisionist uh, account challenges this distinction and so tries to align the morality of role obligations with um, ordinary morality, let's call it, would you be willing to extend that with all kinds of realms? So let's say even when you're talking about medicine or when you're talking about politics. or So uh, are you, is an implication of the account that um, ordinary morality should be aligned with the morality of role obligations in all cases? Or is there something specific about war that says, no, it's just in the case of war that we should do this? My example was, say you have a doctor, a GP, who refers people who want to have abortions and he has reasons to object to abortion. Should the doctor on individual morality grounds let's say, neglect the morality of his role obligation, which is if I'm a doctor, I just have to do that, I have to refer people. Or, um, or, or does your account not imply that? Is, it, is there something specific about war? You guys, you go. You want me to do this? Okay. Yeah. Uh, n no, mm -hmm. I don't think so at all. Um, but I do think that the duties that come with roles, social and professional roles and so on, are quite limited and have to be weighted off against um, uh, other duties. And again, I think 
a lot just does depend on the objective morality of the action that um, an individual is being uh, asked to to do. So if there's a doctor who can perform an abortion and the abortion is the only way to save the woman's life, then I think that there's a right answer about whether it's permissible to perform the abortion. And I think a doctor who mistakenly says, oh, well, I think abortion is wrong, so I'm not going to do this, and in circumstances in which there's no one else who can perform it and the woman dies, I think that's a I think that's wrongful action, even though it was done conscientiously. And in war, it seems to me that uh, there are the the role-based duties of a soldier, but I don't think that those duties can ever be strong enough to override the countervailing general negative duty not to kill people who are not liable to be killed. And it's just never going to be the case that a role-based duty will have the power to override that kind of uh, strong general negative duty. I agree. So, lady in fourth row? Yeah. Tell us precisely what is your revision of the just war theory and under what condition it is possible to kill in war or outside of war? So uh, can you repeat the very last quote? Under what condition is it possible to kill in war or outside of war? That's a very well, complicated yeah. question. Shall I start? There are lots of different possible justifications for, for, for killing people. Except that there are some. Oh, yeah, there are lots, I think. Um, so, you know, be careful. Uh, <laughs> I think there are lots of justifications for killing people. Uh, the one that I believe is most relevant to the permissibility of killing in war is what I call a liability justification. And there's a liability justification for harming someone when that person has, uh, specifically in the case of defense, uh, acted in a way that makes him morally responsible for a threat of unjustified harm to somebody else. So my view about the morality of war is just an extension of my views about the permissibility of individual self-defense and individual defense of others. And it's, I extrapolate to war not by way of analogy, by saying, well, morality of war is that states are permitted to do what individuals would be permitted to do in structurally similar circumstances. My view is that just war or permissible war is just the collective exercise of individual rights of self and other defense against people who have made themselves morally liable to be harmed as a matter of defense. So the way to think about it, in my view, is start off at at foundational level. Think about the permissibility of individual self and other defense and then work outward from there towards war. There are are other kinds of justification, like a lesser evil justification or a consent-based justification or an enforceable duty justification. There's a gamut.
Well, as I mentioned, the difference is that our view about justifiable self and other defense in all contexts other than war is profoundly asymmetrical between the wrongful attacker and the justified defender. Um, and that's the view that I think we should take with us into our consideration about the morality of killing in war, whereas as I explained when I was at the podium, the traditional theory says yes, war is all about defense and even on the battlefield it's all about self-defense, but it's suddenly uh, claiming that we've got to think about defense in this symmetrical way that we don't apply in any other context at all, except maybe boxing matches or something like that, where it's a game and there are rules governing the game. But war isn't like a boxing match. It's much more like good guys versus bad guys. And that's why the, the, the theory is revisionist, but it, but it is not um, terribly prohibitory or whatever, except for the unjust side. It, it, it permits killing on the part of the just can, side. Can I ask... Were you um, trying to get from us a list of rights or goods or values, defense of which, defense of which, you know, by lethal force would be justified? Is that what you were trying to yeah, get? I yeah. So, 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 oh, right, okay, so, so, um, I mean, I think you, Jeff thinks, I think you think, and I think that at least under certain conditions, um, national defense, or the defense of, you know, the political sovereignty and or territorial integrity, you know, of a community, when they are under threat and when, sorry, when they are under attack and when the attack takes a lethal form, that would justify the recourse to war. We have both written about humanitarian intervention and so on. So I think that, 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 that I think is what you were trying, if I'm right, to get us to say. You know, give us a list that we know, you know, when we can you know, go to war. But what I want to do is um, draw out what I think many people and perhaps most of you would regard as an extraordinarily controversial implication of the view that we are defending. Now, we say that if you, are, if you are responsible for the fact that some innocent party, innocent in the sense that Jeff said earlier, will end up being killed, then, at least prima facie, you are liable to being killed yourself, either by that party herself or by someone acting on her behalf. Okay? Now, one implication of that view is that the bond of loyalty that unites soldiers from the same army is overridden by that imperative so that, to use the First World War again in, as an example, on the view that we articulate, well, I believe, and I think you agree with me, but on the view that I articulate, imagine another German soldier, let's call him Adam Frank, who sees Karl attacking a Belgian soldier, assume for the sake of argument that Germany did not have a just cause for invading Belgium, that Belgium did have a just cause for resisting Germany's invasion, on the account that we propose, and certainly that I defend, 
and Werner would be morally justified in killing fellow German soldier Karl you know, in defense of Philippe. And a lot of people would find that really, really, really hard you know, to accept that soldiers from the same side ought to kill one another in defense of enemy you know, soldiers. Well, you don't seem to find it you know, very controversial, but a lot of people balk you know, at the idea. Well, no, that's good. You're on the right side. That's good. So. Alex. Uh, you mentioned uh, Syria, Jeff, and I'd like to bring up a, a case uh, which is in the headlines much at the moment. Um, so, and, and it relates to your notion of bringing the laws of war down to starting thinking about what individuals are permitted to do. So if I see a member of the audience <clears throat> brutally attack another member, then I individually am permitted to uh, attack the attacker in defense of the other member of the audience. Now, that's the type of justification that's been given by many people. For example, I saw an interview on television by a, a Dutch soldier, um, not even from Syrian background, but he was a, a, a devout Muslim who moved to Syria to fight against Assad. And his justification was simply uh, just the one I offered. If you see one person unjustly attacking another, you're permitted to attack the attacker. In fact, he claimed it's a moral obligation to do so. So uh, does it follow that this is the right type of reasoning? Uh, and I know that real cases are always more muddy than the one I just brought up. Uh, so I'd invite you to think whether you think this is the correct type of justification. It, at the moment, um, the debate in the Netherlands was this person is committing a crime by going to Syria and joining a side in the war, even though the Netherlands regards the Syrian government as also committing crimes upon its citizens, if this person were to come back to the Netherlands, he could be tried. Um, so I'd, I'd like your mm, opinion good. on that, and both of you. Yeah, nice point. Mm. Well, um, as a matter of morality, it seems to me that uh, in a case like Syria, if an international volunteer can go there and effectively protect civilians from being massacred by the Assad regime, seems to me that's not only permissible but justified and, and admirable. Just as uh, Orwell's uh, participation in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists seems to me justifiable and admirable. Um, the fact that there's state sovereignty and that kind of thing and Orwell is a Brit and this is Spain and so on, um, that may well affect the, the, the legal consequences, but uh, to my view it doesn't affect the morality of fighting against um, people who are engaged in the commission of atrocities and so on. Um, I, 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 one caveat here, one reservation, and that is that I don't think that people should do this in their role as soldiers of another country. So I don't know this particular case you're referring to, but if this man from the Netherlands is actually a member of the Dutch army, then I think before he goes and fights, he should resign from the Dutch. Pardon? He had resigned. Well, then... Yeah, and I think that's what he must do before he goes to fight. He mustn't go fight in his role as a, a, a Dutch soldier. 
but if he resigns and goes and fights, then that seems to me to be wholly admirable. And it does seem to me very odd that a, a, a British citizen who might go and fight against the Assad regime could face life imprisonment as a penalty for going to do that uh, on the ground that this person is a terrorist. It seems to me a, a completely ridiculous and unjustified use of the notion of terrorism. We have time for a final question. I think the very corner of the third row, the third row lady. Yeah. Let me wait for them. Thank you both for your very enlightening comments. Um, building off of the last question, um, if someone is not an international volunteer, but rather a privately contracted personnel who is being paid, does that fit into your moral and ethical framework for revisionist justice theory, and how so? That's a very, very good question. Um, and I have to do this because I've written you know, on this. So, um, so, so my view is that um, the uh, most powerful objections that I have found against using so-called private soldiers are entirely contingent. So, you know, they are to do with worries about, you know, regulations and so on and so forth, um, which, you know, we should be able to deal with, you know, with a proper regulatory, you know, framework. Um, the philosophical, the more philosophical answer to your question is that certainly on my view, um, there really is no deeply morally salient difference between the ethics of killing in war when those acts of killing are carried out by private soldiers or mercenaries and the ethics of killing in war when those acts of killing are carried out by uniformed you know, soldiers of largely state-controlled you know, armies. That's, you know, that's my view. And yes, I think it partly follows you know, from endorsing the revisionist account. We got time for one more question. Yeah, so we have time for one more question. The podium is willing to answer. Um, the podium, we are. Another question. Yes. Um, thank you very much. Do you think uh, the just war, um, I think of the treaty as best failure, which um, ended the tremendous carnage of the Thirty Years' War, and I think we developed, if I'm right, a doctrine that only sovereign states would have the right to conduct just wars. And then later you had Grotius, the Dutch philosopher, who I think was one of the first to develop an international legal approach to this. Could you say something about that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, my view is that that Westphalian framework uh, is increasingly constraining and unrealistic because it is ceasing to map onto the reality that we find. I also think in a lot of ways it was a, a pernicious framework in that what it ultimately, well, not ultimately, what it penultimately led to in the 19th century was the idea of war as a sovereign right of states. Uh, so that uh, throughout the 19th century there was really no legal constraint on the resort to war and it took the First World War and really then only the Second War to convince 
the community of states, if you want to call it that, that the idea that there was a sovereign right to go to war by states was really quite a bad idea. But I think that that idea was, was highly instrumental in, in leading to the conditions of the, of the First World War, which we're here tonight to kind of uh, dis- discuss. Um, but it, it also doesn't match the reality of the world now in which what you find is states like the United States saying that they are at war when the enemies are these kind of nebulous and dispersed um, groups that have names like Al-Qaeda and so on, which are scarcely unified groups at all and certainly nowhere near being states. But still, uh, individuals have a right of defense against these people who want to kill them. Yeah, so, so I agree. So the, the paradigm is, was pernicious in that it granted sovereign states you know, rights to wage profoundly unjust wars, but of course denied non-state actors the right to wage wars which in some cases you might argue were in fact just wars. So we ought to get rid of it, basically, the paradigm. So apologies to everyone who didn't get to ask their question. I hope this is a conversation which we will continue at some point. I'd like to thank our speakers for a discussion which I think illustrated that the titles of Godfather and Godmother, which I should have added, are well, well deserved. So thank you very much. Thank you.